Scripture reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hey, good evening. Uh, we're continuing our series on the core curriculum of the books of the Bible, and tonight we're going to be looking at the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch, which are the five books of law at, that the Jews followed during the Old Covenant. It was written by Moses shortly before the Israelites went into the land of Canaan. <clears throat> and that will come up later when we talk about why some of these passages are included in this book and what the value was for them and how we can relate. The main point of the book of Genesis, just to give this to you up front, is that God keeps his promises. See, God makes a lot of promises that are very important in the book of Genesis, and the one that Brother Steve just read for us is basically the central promise of the entire Bible. See, God fulfills that promise by giving his son later, but the fact that God keeps his promises is something that's a, a major point of emphasis in the book of Genesis, and God wanted his people to be aware of that so that they could rest assured that what he says will actually come to pass, and he demonstrates that to them in a number of ways, and that's what we're going to be looking at. The book of Genesis is basically divided into four great events and four great men. So we'll look at those four great events first. Now, <clears throat> the first of those events is the very beginning of everything. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, part of the reason that the book of Genesis was written is so that the Israelites could have a sense of identity. They could ground themselves as God's people as they moved into the land of Canaan. See, Canaan is occupied by these foreigners with pagan myths and understandings about where the world came from and how it works, but God wanted his people to understand the truth of the matter, that God spoke the world into existence out of nothing in six days. It's important that this is true and what actually did happen in creation because, of course, God wasn't offering the Israelites a competing myth. He was offering them an explanation for how the world really got here and how nature works and sustains itself. He explains to them that things reproduce after their own kind in verse 24, that God made man in his image, that he instituted marriage, that man has supremacy over the animals in verse 26 and 27, and that the world was made good. See, when God finishes the days of creation and he was done making everything on the sixth day, he pronounced that it was very good in chapter 1, verse 31. This distinguishes the Israelites from the Canaanites because these different pagan cultures had ideas about various cultic rituals and fertility rites that they needed to do in order for the world to work. But what God tells his people is that the world works the way that I made it because I made it good and it sustains itself and there's no reason for people to engage in pagan worship in order to make nature function around them because the way that God makes it works just fine. So the next major event then introduces sin and its consequences to the Israelites. 
Now, sin entered the world because God gave Adam and Eve a rule and they broke it. Eve and, uh, encounters the serpent, who is Satan, in the garden, and Satan deceives her and convinces her and Adam to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God specifically prohibited. Uh, that's in chapter 3. And there were a number of consequences that came about because of the sin that they introduced into the world by making this choice. Uh, the first one is <clears throat> in chapter 3, verse 15, and we're just hitting some highlights here. Uh, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In this passage, God sets enmity between the descendant of the woman, the descendants of the woman, and the descendants of Satan forevermore. And this is a thread that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, and it even continues now today. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, John, when he discusses this passage in the event of Cain and Abel, he says that Cain is a descendant of Satan because he opposes the righteous. See, when we practice righteous, we're children of God, was what John says. And those that don't practice righteous and refuse to do that, well, there's enmity between them and those that do. So what has been set in place here with the introduction of sin to the world is now forever there is going to be opposition between those that do and those that do not practice righteous, those that do and do not live righteously. Now, this bruising on the head and bruising on the heel, of course, is a foretelling of Jesus' coming, but this conflict between Satan and the righteous is something that's set now here forevermore, so long as sin exists. Another thing that was introduced to the world by sin's coming is that the world was changed forever. <clears throat> In verse 17, God says to Adam, "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. "'Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you, "'and you will eat the plants of the field.'" The ground is harder to work now. Adam has to work uh, and farm to eat and survive. It's, he's no longer sustained by the trees that are in the garden, and the world has changed and it's different now. Uh, mankind then, po possibly the biggest consequence, is cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve are no longer allowed to have access to Eden, and they don't live in a place with God anymore. So they, they leave and they're exiled from it, and God sets an angel with a sword that points in every direction at the end of chapter 3, so they can't get back in. The next major event in the book of Genesis is the flood. Now, the flood shows the severity, the seriousness with which God takes sin and the lengths to which he will go to punish sin. Sin is not just something that God doesn't like. Sin is something that God is going to punish and take action against. It's not a guideline that you can violate, but it's something that God takes very, very seriously. In uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it reads, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The wickedness of man gets so great that God resolves that he's going to destroy the entire world and everyone on it, with the exception of one man, his family, and the animals that go on the ark. So God instructs a man named Noah to build an ark to certain specifications. He floods the entire world, kills everything that lives on it, as it says in chapter 7, verse 23, and only people that are on the ark and the animals that are on the ark survive. 
See, God's response to sin is serious. He cares very deeply about the presence of sin on the world and he reacts accordingly to it. The Israelites, when they read this, shouldn't come away thinking that sin is something that God just kind of doesn't like. It's something that God would destroy the entire planet over. And that's introduced to his people very, very early. The next major event in the book of Genesis before we get to the people in the story of Abraham is the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Uh, The summary of this is very straightforward. After the flood, many generations later, all the people of the earth live in the same place and they all speak the same language. They decide that they're gonna build a tower up to heaven and God sees this and he says that this is a problem, that he's going to go down and confuse their languages so that they'll divide up and fill the whole world, which is something that he commanded them to do earlier. So he comes down and he sees them and he scrambles their languages so now they all speak different languages and they divide up according to those languages and fill the rest of the world. And at the end of Genesis chapter 11, you sort of set the stage for the way that things are in the world that we understand them. The world has been destroyed by the flood, sin has been introduced, and people are divided up into these various groups by their languages. And now the book of Genesis gets to a new origin. We've seen the origin of creation and mankind and sin, but now it talks about the origin of God's people. And they all come from this one man whose name is Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse one, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in, the, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The focus of Genesis from here forward is on this man Abraham and his son and his son after him and his son after him. Four great men and they're all in this one family. This promise that God makes to Abraham, like I said before, is the central theme of the whole Bible. And the fact that God keeps his promises is something that he wanted to emphasize to his people early and he wanted to make sure that they understood. Another note, uh, Genesis is not really a guide on Uh, ethics and personal living. What Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph do is not always the right thing. And in fact, some of them make mistakes for the majority of their life. We can't look at these people as behaviors that we should emulate, but rather we should look at this book as proof about God's, uh, God's assurance that what he says will happen. It's better to understand God and his character here rather than the good character or lack thereof from uh, some of these characters that we'll be looking at today. So Abraham has another promise that's made to him that's very central to the book of Genesis and that's in chapter 15 verses 13 through 16. God promises Abraham that his descendants are going to be strangers in a foreign land and the nation will be, uh, the nation that they live in, which we'll find out later is Egypt, will be judged and the people will come out with many possessions. Now remember I said that this book was written by Moses for the Israelites shortly before they go into the land of Canaan. So already when Israel is reading this book, this first book of the law, they would have read this uh, this promise and said, well, that already happened, that's true. So this point that God keeps his promises, that what God says comes true, would have been very apparent to them in the very first reading of this book because that was recent history for them. It had just happened a few generations before. Now, <clears throat> when we look at these, uh, at these various men in this, uh, in this book, we'll look at notable events. We, we don't have time to look at them all. 
So notable events in Abraham's life and stuff that we can take from them, application we can take. Uh, first is Abraham's call, which we just read. In verse 4 of cha- Genesis chapter 12, it says, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. See, God called Abraham out of his land where he was comfortable, where he lived with his family, where he was well-established and he had all of his stuff. And he said, go to this land that I'm going to show you. He's going to a different place. He doesn't really know where. God hasn't really explained much about why, but he knows that God told him and that was enough for him to go. A lot of us have answered a similar call because we're here today as Christians. God called all of us out of our lives in sin, and now we're here expecting the promises that God has given us in eternity. We've all demonstrated the same kind of faith that Abraham has just by beginning this Christian walk, and the continuous walk with God that we have toward eternity is something that we maintain and something that we can see, you know, that sort of is mirrored in the life of Abraham. It's an important decision that Abraham made, and it's an important decision that you all have made as well. Another important part of the life of Abraham is that Abraham believes God's promises and he trusts in him. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. When Abraham heard God explain to him that he was going to have an heir, a son, born by his wife, from a human perspective, that was very impossible because His wife was barren and she was getting old and Abraham had no son. But God told him, you're going to have a son. And Abraham believed God. Even though from a human perspective, that that would be impossible. How could that happen? But he trusts that God can accomplish things that we cannot. If we want to have faith like Abraham, then when we hear things that God has promised us that we, from a human standpoint, are unable to do, things that can't be accomplished, like the washing away of sin. We have to trust that when God says he can do that, that it's true, that he he can do that, and he does wash away our sins with the blood of Jesus. When we do that, we have faith like Abraham. Now, this heir that Abraham is going to have, his name is Isaac, and he was born according to the promise, and that's sort of the notable event that I want to talk about with Isaac, the first one. Abraham is promised an heir, and that heir is born. Now, God, in the form of an angel, visits Abraham and foretells Isaac's birth, but uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughs at this. Interestingly, uh, Isaac's name means he laughs. So God gets the last laugh in this scenario, and the son is born to Sarah, regardless of the fact that she didn't seem to think that would make very much sense to, to happen. And then in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, we see the birth of that son. This was an impossible task for Abraham to do without God. There's no way for Sarah to have had a son. She didn't have a son under normal circumstances when she was younger anyway, but when she was up pushing 90, she did. This is only something that's possible with God. And that takes a great deal of faith to believe in. The next notable event in Isaac's life is that Abraham is going to go and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. (laughs) 
So Abraham is sent to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah, and he obediently does this. He takes his only son that he was given by God as the child of promise, the heir of the blessing, the, the promised child who through which all nations of the world will eventually be blessed because he's going to be made into a great nation, and now he's going to go kill him. This seems very counter to common sense, to reason. It doesn't seem like a good thing to do, but Abraham obeys God because he trusts him. The writer of Hebrews sheds more light on the decision-making that Abraham is making here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, where he says that Abraham believed that God would be able to resurrect Isaac and bring him back so that he could still fulfill the promise. Abraham couldn't resurrect Isaac if things went wrong but he trusted that God knew what he was doing and that God was capable of handling any roadblock and any obstacle in order to bring about the fulfillment of his promises because God always accomplishes his purposes. Just an interesting note of trivia. Uh, The mountain that Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac on is the same spot that the temple is going to be built way later uh, in the Old Testament. And it's near the spot where God sacrifices his son on the cross. It's a very central location for the book, uh, for the whole Bible. Both of these stories of Isaac demonstrate that we should trust God to accomplish what he says in spite of any difficulties that we may see. From a human perspective, there are things that just can't be done, but from God's perspective, that's not the same. God can accomplish things that are above and beyond what we are capable of as people. Now, the next great man that we're going to be looking at in the book of Genesis is Jacob. Jacob is one of the twin sons that Isaac has with his wife, Rebecca. Now, when Rebecca is pregnant with twins, God uh, gives a promise to her as well in Genesis chapter 25, verse uh, 23, which says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the younger and the older shall serve the younger. <clears throat> in the following verses, the stage for this to be true is set. Um, Jacob gets Esau to agree to trade his inheritance, his birthright, for a bowl of stew. Uh, Jacob is a guy, he's kind of a homebody, you know, he lives in tents and Esau is a hunter, and he's out hunting, and he gets very, very hungry. He comes back, and Jacob has some stew, and he offers it, but he says, you're going to have to trade your inheritance for it, and Esau kind of foolishly does. Later uh, in life, Jacob deceives Isaac into giving a blessing that was meant for Esau to him, to Jacob. He does this by uh, cheating him out of it. Isaac starts to get blind and um, Esau is very hairy, so Jacob wears some kind of skin and makes himself look very hairy and feel very hairy. Um, <clears throat> and he gets the blessing from, from Esau. Like I said before, God does not endorse the behavior that goes on in the book of Genesis. Uh, Paul comments on this, this specific section in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. That's Romans after letters to the in your Bible. God's purpose, according to his choice, would not stand because of works, but because of him who calls. It's not because everything that everybody does is good that God accomplishes what he says, but it's because God said it at all that things are accomplished. There's a difference there. So this dynamic between Jacob and Esau that's set here becomes the more major part of his life that we're going to look at. 
after Jacob has stolen Esau's birthright, maybe understandably, Esau is very angry with him. And he actually is murderously angry with him, as it says in chapter 27, verse 42. So Jacob's mother, Rebecca, advises him to flee. Just run away and leave and get as far away from your brother as possible because he's going to be a real problem for you. He wants to kill you. So Jacob goes and lives with this man named Laban, who's kind of a piece of work. And he works for him for 20 years. He marries his daughters and he gets a family there and God blesses him and he's very prosperous while he lives there. And then some 20-something years later, uh, God tells God tells Jacob to go back to the land of Canaan. It's time to go back toward home, take all your stuff and go. And while he's on his way there, he's extremely concerned because he he pretty much thinks that God is leading him into a trap here. He's worried that when he goes back, Esau is going to kill him. And he's worried sick about this. If you turn to chapter 32, because I have to do that too. In chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob is hedging all of his, uh, all of his stuff. He's dividing it up so that if Esau attacks, the other section of it can escape. And he even makes this very interesting prayer to God <clears throat> in the following verses. Uh, starting in verse 12, or starting in verse 11, he says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Jacob starts to remind God of the promises that God made to him. Do you think that God forgot what he told Abraham Do you think that God forgot about Jacob? Because Jacob just spent 20 years living with God, very actively prospering him. You see, while he lived with Laban, he made these agreements with Laban where he would take, uh, you know, the speckled sheep and the speckled lambs from his flock. And then the next year, every lamb that was born would be speckled. So they would all go to Jacob. And then the next year, Laban would say, well, maybe you should only get the black sheep. And then the next year, all the sheep that are born are black. So... God is working very actively to bless Jacob. Jacob should know that God is taking good care of him, and yet here he prays, God, I'm very worried. Don't you remember your promise? You can't do this to me. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust that God is taking good care of him here. So then, starting in chapter 24, Jacob is alone. He's alone at night, and he gets jumped by this man. Now, this man is revealed to be what's called an anthropomorphism, which means that it's, it's God taking the form of a human being. And they wrestle on the ground all night. And while they're wrestling, Jacob is not submitting. He's not going to let this man win. It says, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So I said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
And Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he asked, why do you ask me my name? And blessed him there. So Jacob named this place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. Jacob wrestling with God shows the attitude that Jacob has with his relationship with God right now. See, he's trying to micromanage everything that's going on around him. He's going to divide up all of his herds. He's going to remind God, don't you remember the promise that you made to me? He's trying to account for everything that could possibly go wrong instead of trusting God that he's able to handle everything. God doesn't force anybody to submit to him and his will. We can fight with God every step of the way through our whole lives, or we can just learn to trust him and let him lead us. If we want to wrestle with God, we can. I mean, it, you know, he might injure us, and it might be an injurious process, but it's easier to just trust in God. The name that God gives to Jacob, Israel, means he who struggles, struggles with God. Is that not the story of the people of Israel for the entire New Testament, that they're constantly struggling with God and trying to do things without him and sort of go over and around him? We can learn from this story to maybe not wrestle so much with God. God is infinitely strong, but he does not force Jacob to submit here in this fight. Jacob has to make the choice. You have to make the choice to submit to God in your life and trust in him and his promises the same way. All of Jacob's worrying ends up being for nothing. <clears throat> in chapter 33, verse 4, when Jacob and Esau meet, it says that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. They traveled together very amicably. There was no problem at all. Jacob was silly to think that God was leading him into some kind of trap or that God had forgotten his promise at all. And worrying about Esau and trying to account for this risk ended up being all for nothing. Wasted sleepless nights for Jacob. The next main character, the last main character of uh, the book of Genesis is Joseph. <clears throat> Jacob has 12 sons, which is good because if uh, Abraham is going to be made into a great nation, his uh, his descendants need to stop having one and two kids. So he has 12 sons, and Joseph is one of them. We see this in chapter 35, verses 22 and following. And Joseph's life is very detailed and rich, so we're going to skip a lot of those and just hit the highlights. Uh, Joseph has these dreams, and in these dreams, his brothers are they, they're gathering straw, and he's gathering straw, and the straw of his brothers bows down to his straw while it's standing up. And he has this coat of many colors that he gets from his father, and all of these things cause his brothers to resent him. They don't like him because they don't like what he's saying. They don't like these dreams that he's getting from God, so they decide that they're going to kill him. And eventually they compromise, and instead of killing him, they throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery. So they sell him to this roving band of Ishmaelites in uh, chapter 37, verses 28, and then in 31 and following. And those Ishmaelites sell him to Egypt. Jacob, or uh, Joseph, when he lives in Egypt, <clears throat> remember the, the promise that God made to Abraham too. In chapter 15, verses 13 and following, God said that the Israelites were going to live in a land and then they were going to come out of it with many possessions. For Joseph to be taken and put into Egypt is setting the stage for this to be true. What God says comes true and God keeps his promises. 
So Joseph is wildly successful in Egypt because God is with him and he's set in charge of his master's house and his master's name is Potiphar. Uh, While he lives with Potiphar, because Joseph is a very handsome, studly guy, Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him. So she comes and she presents that to him and he, he refuses and he says no. And the reasoning that he gives her is actually very, very profound. It's very good. In verse 9 it says, There was no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Notice the way that Joseph phrases this. He doesn't say, well, you might get pregnant. And he doesn't say, I might get an STD. And he doesn't say, well, we might get caught. He doesn't think about physical consequences. He thinks about the fact that doing something wrong is a sin against God. If we can mitigate the risk of sin, that doesn't make it right. If we can find a way to make sin an easy choice to get away with, that doesn't make it a good choice. Our focus should be, first and foremost, always, that we're not going to sin against God, that we're going to make choices that please Him, because our relationship with Him is the most important, and protecting that relationship with Him is the best thing that we can do, because that was what was on the front of Joseph's mind in this situation. So eventually she tries to force himself on Joseph and he flees. Uh, She's holding his garment and he he runs away and she accuses him falsely and he's put in jail. While he's in jail, he meets two of Pharaoh's officials, a cupbearer and a baker. And these two men are having dreams and Joseph interprets them. And eventually later, the cupbearer has his job back and he remembers Joseph because Pharaoh is having dreams that he can't understand and Joseph interpreted his dreams properly. So Joseph is called out of jail, he's presented to Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams to mean that there is going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt and then seven years of famine. Now this seven years of famine is very important because if Egypt can become the breadbasket of the world and take advantage of the seven years of plenty that they're going to have, then they're going to be able to feed, feed everybody and they'll all survive the famine. Well, this is a very good thing because what Joseph then is put in charge of is making sure that there's food for everybody in Egypt. And later, Jacob sends the rest of Joseph's brothers to go to Egypt, not knowing that that's where Joseph is, and they're coming there looking for food. And there's this very long and dramatic series of events where eventually Joseph reveals himself to them uh, and his brothers are given a place to live in Egypt. And now God's people have all moved there. Some 70 of them move to Egypt. Towards the end of Joseph's life, after Jacob has died, all of his brothers are very concerned because they're worried that Joseph is holding a grudge against them and that he's going to punish them for the fact that they sold him into slavery when they were younger. But Joseph says something in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 and following. Do not be afraid for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted, to them, so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What Joseph's brothers did was a, a terrible thing. And it's something that they'll have to answer for, to be sure. But God still used it for good because God always keeps his promises. 
This has been the major theme throughout the entire book of Genesis. And the whole book concludes on this note that God means things for good. He purposes things for good. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says that God works all things together for good, and he works all things together according to his purpose. See, God is able to use the way that the world works, and he always has been, to accomplish what he wills and what he purposes, because God keeps his promises. And God kept his promise to Abraham, and through the descendants of Abraham, eventually, we have Christ who was born. And Christ was born, and through him, all the people of the world, all the families of the world are blessed. The way that they're blessed is because they have access to salvation from their sins through his blood. If you want to participate in the blessing that comes through Abraham, through Jesus, and have access to that blood, that opportunity is available for you tonight. Or if you need to make something right with your relationship with God, whatever your need is, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.